I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom. Like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. If you're looking for plump lips that last, you need to know about Juvederm Lip Fillers. With Juvederm Volbella XC and Juvederm Ultra XC, your lip look, whether it's subtle or bold, can last up to one full year with optimal treatment and no additional maintenance. Find a licensed specialist and see if it's right for you at Juvederm.com today. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M.com. Add fullness to lips in adults over 21 with Juvederm Volbella XC or Juvederm Ultra XC. Do not use if you have severe allergies or a history of severe allergic reactions, or if you you're allergic to lidocaine or the proteins used in Juvederm. Tell your doctor if you have a history of scarring or taking medicines that decrease the body's immune response or that can prolong bleeding. Common side effects include injection site redness, swelling, pain, tenderness, firmness, lumps, bumps, bruising, discoloration, or itching. As with all fillers, there's a rare risk of unintentional injection into a blood vessel, which can cause vision abnormalities, blindness, stroke, temporary scabs, or scarring. For full important safety information, visit juviderm.com. This is Deanna Okanachoff. I'm joined by Peter Edelman and Steve Murens, and we have a special guest here today, Natalie Drolet from the Migrant Workers Center here in Vancouver. Uh, the Migrant Workers Center was formerly the West Coast Domestic Workers Association, uh, changed uh, name and mandate um, slightly enlarged uh, in February 2018. Uh, but she's been with the Domestic Workers Association uh, in its former incarnation since November 2014. And Natalie, before that, you were in Ottawa uh, working with, can you remind me again? Sure. I was the staff lawyer for a special access to justice project called Connecting Ottawa, which was based out of the South Ottawa Community Legal Services, which is one of the community legal clinics uh, in Ontario. Um, and in that project, we focused on improving access to justice for, for newcomers who faced language barriers. Nice. So uh, Natalie is with us today, and we're going to be focusing on caregivers. So uh, we're going to be talking a little bit about historically what the programs are that uh, caregivers have encountered in terms of coming into Canada. Uh, what I always like to say to people that are uh, coming into or wanting information about programming around caregivers is that what we have right now is a proverbial dog's breakfast of programs that were there uh, 
interim programs, things that have tried to patch up old issues and stuff that's coming down the pipeline. So we're going to try and walk you through that a little bit step by step, but it really is quite a mishmash. So it perhaps will be a little bit confusing, but hopefully Natalie will be able to walk us through some of that, but also perhaps get into some general discussion about some of the unique vulnerabilities facing this community and, uh, Hopefully that will inspire us some interesting conversation. Um, so Natalie, let's just start perhaps by um, giving us some of the historic context in terms of um, the backdrop, just how what the what the programming was historically, and some of what people might think that they know about what rules face caregivers coming into Canada, and even even before that, what is a caregiver? Hmm. <laughs> Sure. So when we talk about caregivers, we're talking about a specific kind of caregiver, a caregiver who provides in-home care in private homes. And so this involves um, an employment relationship with usually one employer um, in a private home, um, either providing care for children or providing care for elderly or people with high medical needs or disabilities or any combination of those. Um, and so for decades, Canada has had various incarnations of a caregiver program that would allow um, migrant women, um, mainly from uh, countries in the global south, to come to Canada to fill this labor market shortage of in-home, in-home caregivers. And um, up until 2014, um, when uh, at the time the Conservative government changed the program and introduced the pathways that are currently in place. Caregivers were required to live in the home with their employer. Um, In 2014, that changed. Uh, Caregivers, since that time, are are able to choose, at least theoretically, whether they live in or live out of the home. Uh, What we're seeing is that many do continue to live in just because of the high cost of of rent, obviously, uh, around the Lower Mainland. So maybe I could uh, talk a little bit about the recent announcement um, for changes and then sort of backstep a little bit from there. So on February 23rd of this year, of 2019, uh, the Minister of Immigration announced that there will be two new five-year pilot uh, immigration programs to replace the current pathways to permanent residence for caregivers. Um, So we had been waiting for over a year um, for this announcement. Last year in February of 2018, the minister announced that the current pathways to permanent residence for caregivers would come to an end um, by November 29th of this year, um, but didn't say um, what would replace them. And so um, it's been a long wait for a lot of caregivers who have been uncertain about what their futures in Canada would be. So under this, this these two new programs, um, caregivers will um, be required to complete 24 months of work as they did under the current pathways and the old program, which was the Living Caregiver Program. Um, but two significant changes that are coming down the pipe are that caregivers will now receive occupation-specific work permits instead of employer-specific work permits, which were a feature of both the current (laughs) pathways and the previous um, live-in caregiver programs. 
And spouses and common law partners of caregivers will now be able to apply for an open work permit and children of caregivers will be able to apply for a study permit, which will effectively allow them to accompany um, the caregiver to Canada. So these are positive changes. Um, the family separation that caregivers have experienced um, for, for decades under these various programs has um, has been tragic for, for many families, um, being separated for upwards of you know five to seven years while they complete the program requirements and wait for their permanent residency applications to process. Um, and so that is a positive step. Um, the government has yet to provide real details about um, how this is all going to work, what the requirements are going to be uh, to enter this new program. And we're also concerned that occupation-specific work permits don't may not go far enough in terms of um, preventing, you know, the exploitation and abuse of caregivers that has been so rampant um, under these programs. So, essentially... Just before, do you want to maybe just explain, when you say an occupation-specific work permit versus an employer-specific work permit, what do you you mean by that? Like, what... Yeah, so... um, People who come to Canada under the Temporary Foreign Worker Program um, and the various caregiver programs are part of that program um, receive employer-specific work permits. So that means that they receive a work permit that um, allows them to work for a single employer in a single type of job and in one location. Um, so it really limits their, their labor market mobility. Um, they're not allowed to um, simply change employers um, if they wish, if they wish to leave, or if, or if that employer is is abusing them, um, they have to go through a whole process that takes you know anywhere from like six to ten months to, to get the paperwork to to change employers. So going through the LMA process and then applying for a new work permit, um, during which time they're not um, authorized to work. So they you know they they have no income during that time, they can't access any kind of social assistance um, support. And, um, you know, they come here to support their families back home and to pay off recruitment debt. Often they are charged high recruitment fees for jobs. And so, you know, the last thing that a caregiver wants to do is leave a job, right? Even if, even if they are um, experiencing um, some forms of exploitation. And so, um, so we've been advocating for open work permits or even better permanent residence status on arrival um, so that caregivers are on par with Canadians and permanent residents um, as far as their labor market mobility is concerned. And I just want to add that while you might be able to get employment insurance, mm-hmm. if you're earning $14 an hour and employment insurance is 7 Right. And if you're living in, and now all of a sudden you don't have a place to live, um, trying to you know make ends meet, find a place to stay on seven dollars per hour, it's uh, pretty catastrophic too. And on that point about living in, you've said that part of the reason why people are living in is because of the cost of living here in Vancouver, for example. But what I have found is also that. Um, there's still the option to live in. And so um, so oftentimes if the employer is insistent that, you know, I understand that there are restrictions on what an employer can advertise. Mm-hmm. And so um, 
an employer cannot advertise that they want somebody to live in, but there is still that ability to be like, okay, well, what we're actually looking for is somebody who's wishing to live in. So there's only so much that the department can control who they're going to accept for the position. And if that really is the preference for the employer, it's very difficult for them to really have that, that mobility. Yeah. yeah, absolutely. And I think that goes to the question of, you know, these employer-specific work permits create such a power balance, right, between employers and employees, where caregivers have very little bargaining power if the employer wants them to live in. Um, the caregiver will often fear, <laughs> you know, losing their job, right, if they if they um, if they don't wish to leave, live in, or if they. Um, you know, voice out um, any concerns. Yeah. yeah. But going back to Peter's question and the uh, occupation-specific work permit, um, the benefit there would be that they can move from one employer to the other within the sector um, between one employer to the other. So it would address that issue of being able to switch employers, but still um, within the limitation of being being required to stay within the sector. Yeah, so I think there's a difference between an occupation-specific work permit and a sector-based work permit. Right. Um, an occupation-based work permit is narrower, I think, than right. a sector-based work permit. So, for instance, caregivers who work uh, in private homes have two like NOC codes or National Occupational Classification Codes. One is for care for children, the other is for care for people or home care for people for high medical needs. Um, and so they would be restricted to either or, um, whereas, you know, two programs ago <laughs> in the Living Caregiver Program, caregivers could, um, you know, switch from doing home care to doing child care and include time worked under either occupation towards meeting their 24 months of work requirement. Yeah. Whereas now they're going to be restricted. Um, you know, if someone comes in under the, the, the child care program, they will be doing child care for 24 months. So they will have to find an employer who has presumably an LMIA for child care in order to switch employers. So in pra like practically speaking, I'm not sure. Um, you know, it makes to be a question to see just how, um, whether this will really facilitate um, workers being able to switch jobs yeah. really easily or not. What do they do in cases of children with high medical needs? So really Yeah. So you either get one or the other? Yeah, one or the other. Well, they, they, don't give you, they don't give you an... Uh, like, they won't give you the one with, with, with that authorizes both. No. No. And you actually have to pick at the time of the LMIA. They have a different wage and everything. So you're really committing. And even the permanent residence streams are delineated. So you can't blend work experience and the two for one at present. With an occupation-specific work permit, are you tied to the salary that you initially came under in the LMIA? Um, well... Presumably, um, what, well, what happens now is that employers have to pay the prevailing wage, so and they're supposed to um, check, I think, once a year to make sure that the prevailing wage is still the same, and if it has gone up, they're supposed to pay whatever the prevailing wage is. Uh, but there's kind of like in other programs, you can't earn more than the wage in the LMIA, like with an occupation specific, if you went from 14 
and another employer offers 18, are you still tied to the $14 an hour wage? We have no idea. We don't even know if there's going to be a labor market application at all, or if they're just going to be LMIA exempt. They've offered no details. Right. Yeah. Yeah. We don't know if it's going to be like, uh, as there was at one point, like a million years ago, there Mm -hmm. was just a universal LMIA approval for caregiver, I think is how it was back in the day when it first started. Just for our listeners who are not immersed in this area, an LMIA is a labor market impact assessment, which is an, an application that is made by the employer to show that they've tried to recruit people in a certain area. Uh, and that they're offering a reasonable or the prevailing wage within that area. Um, it's a, anyway, There's just a to give some context for those who are less immersed in this. That, uh, Kyle Harmon and Mira Takra. Yeah. Um, so with caregivers, how do Canadian families find caregivers who are overseas? Like how do they even, for a role that's like possibly living in, with and raising children or caring for someone in the family with high medical needs? Yeah, um, well, there's different ways. Um, sometimes employers in Canada will uh, find a caregiver on their own. Um, you know, what we've heard that can happen is that there will be, you know, a neighbor or someone in their family will have a caregiver and then that caregiver might know someone um, back in the home, you know, their home country who's interested in coming to Canada to do this work. And so they get connected sort of through their own networks. Um, but I'd say the vast majority of employers go through agencies, uh, recruitment agencies that are based here, um, but which have partner agencies in the countries overseas that then recruit um, in, in those countries. And so they have to advertise here first. Mm-hmm. And in the few caregiver applications that I've done, I've noticed that nobody, no Canadian citizens or permanent residents seem to apply. Is that a wage thing, do you think? A job title thing? Like, what is it that is making this program, I guess, necessary? Um, like why, why do you think Canadians aren't applying? Yeah, I, I mean, great question. I think it has to do with the wages, to be honest. Um, we, um, we did a little, a little study, <laughs> um, uh, with a survey in our, in our office and interviewed, um, uh, some employers and some caregivers about their experiences of, of recruitment uh, to come to Canada to work. And then as part of that, we also surveyed some of the agencies that are operating in the Lower Mainland. And what we heard is that um, it's more expensive to hire a Canadian. And so the agencies were quite <laughs> upfront about the fact that you know Canadians get paid more um, for the job, even though the, under the program, um, you know, these jobs are not supposed to replace jobs that Canadians would be, you know, so available and willing to do. Those prevailing wages that say $14 and whatever the high medical needs or whatever the wage, but those prevailing wages that are low, is that based then on like the prevailing uh, uh, prevailing wage for Canadians and permanent residents or everyone including caregivers? Like are the presence of caregivers like is is it like a circular thing where the fact that all the foreign caregivers are here is what's keeping 
prevailing wage down, which is allowing people to recruit at a low wage. I have an opinion about that. <laughs> <laughs> no. Yeah, they, yeah. 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 Back when it was West Coast domestic. Yes. Yeah, that's right. So what's your opinion on this? Um, so I used to really rail against, like, I mean, because my clients were from this community, I felt like a real, um, like I really needed to defend the necessity of this program because I felt that it was bringing such an important community into Canada. And I think that's the conflict for those who are advocating because um, for me, the clients that I was representing and working with are such solid Canadians when they become permanent residents. So I feel like kind of a sense of protectiveness in a way. Um, but up until the living caregiver program, this is now the, the third eldest of these iterations, was replaced by the Pathways, which was the one that the Conservatives brought in in 2014. Prevailing wage was minimum wage. It just was. And then they said, look, the living caregiver program is suppressing the labor market value. And, you know, I just, it was my mandate to just object to everything the conservatives said, right? So I was like, no, no, no. But in fact, I believe now that is absolutely the truth. And I kind of knew it because every single time one of my clients went from having an employer-specific living caregiver work permit and got an open permit, they immediately got an increase in their salary of about 50% because they could. Mm-hmm. Like they just could, and that if their employer didn't give them that, then they would immediately have that mobility. Um, so it definitely was. And then when the prevailing wage went up, uh, the employers came up with that money and would be able to pay it. So mm-hmm. I understand that it's hard for families to pay that much for childcare. Uh, it's expensive, and Vancouver is a very expensive place to live. Uh, but it's it's a it's a really big job, and um, so I think the answer from my perspective is that yes, uh, people are willing to do the job on the employer's terms because they would like to become Canadians, and so I think that there is still a great deal of leverage that a Canadian employer has with a foreign national coming from the global south, where uh, it's. When, when you talk to employers about the Canadians that they do interview, because there are often Canadians that do apply for jobs, they don't want to work split shifts, they don't want to work these particular hours, they don't want to follow these particular rules, they won't stay for two years, they will work for three months and then they'll go somewhere else, they won't show up on time for work, like there's just... These are the kinds of complaints you hear. They want somebody who's going to be loyal, who's going to work super hard, who's going to show up on time for work every day, who's going to stay for a big chunk of time. And so there is a difference. There is a difference in value both because of the cost and because of the the ethic and the the ability to kind of stick with the jobs for such a long period of time. Mm-hmm. Yeah, my soul box. I see you nodding. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, so in terms of these, so these new work permits, are they now like the, the occupation specific work permits are proposed or are in effect right now? No, they're not in effect. Um, we're, 
We're waiting for details. So the minister made the announcement in February and said that there would be another announcement um, that would cover all of the particulars um, sometime before November, presumably. Yeah, maybe <laughs> explain the magic of November in the sense of like what's in the middle there, because like that yeah. sense of that limbo is kind of putting people in a really odd place. Yeah. So. Um, so we were quite critical of the pathways that came to effect back in 2014 because they they did limit um, the ability for some caregivers to access permanent residence. So um, the pathways introduced new um, higher educational requirements um, to be eligible for permanent residency. So um, caregivers would require one year of post-secondary education in Canada or its equivalent. Whereas previously under the older program, um, they only were required to have completed um, high school. So, um, and then there was also a language requirement that was introduced where caregivers would have to meet benchmark level five, which is pretty high level. It's higher than what's required for Canadian citizenship. And so a lot of caregivers came to Canada, you know, around that time and, and there was a lot of confusion around, you know, what had changed in the program. Um, because especially because there were a lot of caregivers who were still here who were under the old program because they were grandfathered in. So there was just a lot of confusion and there was not um you know, a lot of information um, provided by the government at the time that these changes were made. And so a lot of caregivers came to Canada thinking that they would be able to apply for permanent residency and then found out later that actually they didn't meet the requirements. They didn't have the one-year post-secondary equivalency, which if you're from the Philippines, for example, would require that you've basically finished a four-year bachelor degree. That would be, I think, considered, you know, a one-year equivalency. Um, and so to sort of remedy that situation where there are caregivers here now who cannot apply under the current pathways that expire in November, um, the government instituted this new interim pathway that is only available for three months. Um, so it expires on June the 4th of this year um, and has uh, took away the one-year post-secondary requirement and only requires that caregivers have completed 12 months of work rather than 24 months of work. Um, so this is currently available to caregivers for another three weeks. Um, and uh, our concern with that is that, um, you know, it, it's a very short amount of time for caregivers to even find out that this is available to them, you know, nevertheless to actually prepare the applications, um, you know, which can take some time to put together all of the supporting documentation that is needed. Things like police clearances, for instance, can take some time to acquire it. So, um, so yeah, so we're, you know, <laughs> we're, it remains to be seen how many caregivers will actually be able to avail themselves of that. And it's also not clear to us why it was only brought in for three months. It just seems like a very short period of time. Yeah. yeah. They're pretty aggressively completeness screening those as they do others too. So mm -hmm. somebody that applies on the 3rd of June, mm -hmm is eligible mm -hmm. but they forgot to fill a form right. properly or something they could be bounced and then forever foreclosed from that it's not whether or not they met their requirements on that day it's whether their completed perfect application was received by the department on that day that's how they drafted it for some reason we could do a whole episode of this whole focus on completeness oh, yeah <laughs> yeah that's like my episode on stupid rules yeah 
<laughs> the ongoing episode on Super Yeah. <laughs> yeah. yeah. You can actually call this the podcast on Super Wheels. <laughs> yeah. Obsession. Um, the other thing I wanted to say about that, the, the pathways, is that the Living Caregiver Program, so the, 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 the predecessor to the predecessor, that had this notion of the caregiver programming being a hybrid. Like it's a temporary permanent program. Like there's, it's like you enter the worker and then transition to permanent residence. It's one fluid stream. Um, the one that's coming, we understand, is also a temp to perm. Like they're bringing that back. But the one that came in the middle, these pathways, was just like you're a worker, and then if you happen to qualify for permanent residence, then so be it. But they were disconnected, and they did that very, very deliberately. Come as a worker, and if you happen to qualify, so be it. But what it meant is that, like, you came in, and then you had two years, you needed to accumulate two years of work experience, but the, the permanent residence program had a set expiration date. So anybody who came in for the final two years of the program could not qualify for permanent residence before the program expired. So they were just building up this group of people who didn't have a program that they could qualify for until a new one was introduced. So they created this like world of confusion for people who were being let in to something that they didn't know whether they were ever going to qualify for that thing. Um, but also this sent this bizarre message to visa offices like, you're now trying to make a work permit application. You probably come from a developing country. You probably have very limited assets. Uh, probably like, you're not sure, like we don't even know what education requirements you're gonna need to meet in order to qualify. So trying to make an argument that at some point you're not gonna return to your country of citizenship, which is one of the key requirements when making a work permit, it becomes really challenging. So my big, Frustration has been the refusal rates on work permits at the initial application stage has been astronomically high. Mm -hmm. And so I currently have 10 judicial review applications going on refusals of those initial work permits because the visa officers are like, I don't see a clear pathway to permanent residence. So you don't have a lot of money. You don't have a lot of employment prospects in your country of citizenship. Canada is a cooler place to live than the Philippines, so I'm going to refuse on overstay risk, you know? And so it's almost like the program is, like, choking itself out, and um, it just feels a little bit dupe, like, sort of, um, uh, I don't know, it's like a clandestine way of, <laughs> of choking the program completely. Are you seeing that in GCMS, where they're saying there's no clear pathway to permanent residence, or it's just implicit? In it's just implicit. They're just saying that there's, there's a risk of overstay. And I mean, we're arguing it in federal court, but, um, and those cases are mostly, well, we're mostly succeeding in federal court. So anyways, I'm seeking consolidation of seven cases right now to see if we can actually talk about it as a systemic issue. But this is like a real rising thing, especially since November 2017, when it became impossible for anybody to have a clear pathway because they just didn't have enough time to, to accumulate two years before the program expired. So in this province, every other permanent residence program that's economic-based is modeled around these expression of interest systems where everyone is ranked against each other. 
using a grid of 1,200 for express entry, 200 for the BCPMP. Is there a reason why the caregiver should be treated any different with an expression of interest system within just for the caregiver? I'm sure that that's what it goes to. I think that's the detail we're waiting on. I mean, they're going to have a quota, right? And I bet you that that's like, how are they going to triage this group? And I'm sure it's going to be something like that. I think you're right. They're totally streamlining this whole mentality of how they they pick applicants. And so you think they're going to bring in caregivers are going to come in and then be ranked against each other to get permanent residence? Well, I think that because, and I don't know how you feel, I don't know, it's just, to me, the fact that they have brought back the notion of looking at the whole family and sort of recognizing that they're ultimately going to be immigrants. Life is full of awesome what ifs and some not so much, like unexpected medical costs. That's why United Healthcare provides Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans to supplement your primary plan and help manage out of pocket costs. Learn more at uh1.com. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters, May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do it. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. I feel like... And they tried to bring in the notion of a quota with the interim pathways for the first time before it was demand driven because it was all, um, because the, in the living caregiver program was, you know, there was no specific quota. It was only, it was only a quota in the sense of the, the levels plan where they decide how many of those applications they're going to um, anticipate. But I imagine that now they will have some specific way of establishing which of those applicants they're going to accept, not in a first-past-the-post kind of a way, but perhaps in a more substantive way of evaluating against specific criteria. Mm-hmm. I mean, the BCPMP has a category ranking burger flippers and truck drivers against all the other burger flippers and truck drivers and other entry-level like entry knocks, so I don't see why regardless of the merits of it, for the caregivers, it would be any different necessarily. And so the other flip coin then of caregivers beyond them getting in and getting permanent residence is uh, compliance and vulnerability. So imagine I can see that you have stuff thoughts on it. (laughs) So... I would think that this gets compounded by the fact that you're not dealing with businesses and you're dealing with individuals who don't understand Employment Standards Act. I don't think they have to show at any stage that they understand the Employment Standards Act as part of the caregiver LMIA application. Um, like what sort of stuff, like do you, from what you saw, was were the issues that arose and what you see, are the issues that arose more malicious Base or ignorance base, or just somebody came and it didn't work out because they hired someone without ever meeting them in person to raise the most their significant people in their lives. 
Like, where do you see the issues generally as having arisen? I think it's probably a mix of both. I mean, we we definitely, um, you know, see really shocking um, cases of abuse of caregivers by employers who are quite wealthy um, um, and can't afford to pay their caregivers, you know, for the hours that they work. Um, you talking about physical abuse, withholding of pay? Yeah, no, I'm talking mainly financial. Right. So withholding of pay, you know, having an expectation that the caregiver is available 24-7, seven days a week, um, you know, often working long hours, but, you know, not getting paid for all of the hours that they work. Um, although we are seeing an increase in, in sexual harassment as well um, and verbal abuse. Um, and so, so yeah, I think that, um, the, you know, I think that this goes to, um, you know, sort of a, a, a perception, right, of, of, of who a caregiver is and has to do with um, um, not viewing, um, you know, domestic work as, as being legitimate work. And I think that that's something that as a society, we still struggle, right, to view domestic work as being legitimate work. Um, the Employment Standards Act of BC, for instance, only covered live-in caregivers up until last Monday when they made the change to um, broaden the definition of a domestic worker to include workers who also live out. And so, um, so I, yeah, I think that there, you know, that historically this is work that has been done by women in the home, unpaid work, um, and I think that sometimes there's still that expectation that um, that this work, um, you know, that this work because of, of who these women are and where they come from and the color of their skin, um, that they, you know, that they don't have to follow the law and that there's not going to be any repercussions. And part of that also has to do, of course, with the lack of enforcement um, of the laws that, that we do have on the books to protect them. Yeah, I think the, the types of stories that you do here when you're working with this community, they are, they're nothing short of shocking. Um, and they do expand across all the different types of abuse that you will see. <laughs> Um, both physical and psychological, financial, all of that sort of thing. Um, but there's another entire component to it as well. Um, so it is quite complex, um, which is when you start looking at the involvement of agencies and recruiters and um, when it gets into the human trafficking component of that as well, mm -hmm. um, the issues involving um, Recruiters that will use tactics like um, inserting a misrepresentation into a document strictly for the purpose of gaining leverage over that person, where exorbitant, um, uh, extortionate recruitment fees are charged, where other family members are used as leverage um, back in the country of origin. Um, and also, so that's the second component. Um, and there are major issues of regulation because many of these agencies or organizations exist outside of the country and are totally ghosted so that they don't actually exist in any legal capacity in Canada. So there's a total inability to enforce 
um, in Canada against those recruiters, that it means that the person is entering Canada in a state of massive financial um, vulnerability uh, so that they really don't have the ability to uh, make conscious and um, uh, consenting decisions because there's so much vulnerability at that point. Um, but then also there's another whole dynamic too, which is that often there are there are families here who are the employers um, who are in a lot of need themselves too, and so the exploitation is sometimes born of the misfortune of the actual employer as well. So it's again, it's a very very multifaceted issue. It's not very easy to be like. That's the bad guy over there. I don't envy the policymakers in trying to figure this out. There's a there's a problem of lack of uh, funded childcare in Canada. So uh, people are really kind of desperate, and people that don't have enough income are in a situation where they need care for their kids so that they can work, but they can't afford it. And so the caregivers are the most likely. The, the foreign caregivers are the most likely to fill those gaps because at least they have something to gain because they also, working for free in Canada for a year is maybe a small price to pay when otherwise your children might go hungry in small town Philippines, you know, like in the province somewhere. So, uh, so it gets super complicated. Okay. No, no, you go ahead. Um, I, I guess so. Just to, I, I'm just trying to understand, just to, to clarify for myself what's happened with the transition. Um, so, I mean, we've got these, this situation of people who are very vulnerable here. We've gone through three, or this is a third iteration of the program. So, the first, just to be clear, the first program was Living Caregiver Program, and that existed from, well, like, when did that start? 1992. So ninety two to twenty fourteen. Yeah, and prior to that, there was another another program, but we won't go there. <laughs> okay. Yeah. So it replaced another program. It did. Yeah. And did the other program work? It didn't work. It, it had a lot of the same problems, or even worse. Yeah, because that one evolved as well. I think, and that one at the beginning didn't even have a pathway to permanent residence. Right. Yeah. So the living caregiver program was an improvement because it had a, a pathway to permanent residence. Mm -hmm. And then in 2014, we brought in these pathways that disconnected the work that people were doing from the permanent residence. Yes. And now we're going back to a program where at least the, the work is somewhat going to be, or we presume the work is going to be linked to access to permanent residence, but also bringing the families here with and this is the I guess this is my question in terms of the new programs. Do overall we see this as an improvement in some ways over the current pathways situation? Or we sorry you, the people who work in this area, um, you see this as an improvement over what exists now, or do you see this as another iteration? I'm trying to figure where where's the program or what's the what do you see as the policy setup that avoids some of these situations of vulnerability and, and the abuses that are going on? Or are they just inevitable in terms of the and we've talked about this before in terms of the the disconnect in the privilege between what the privilege in Vancouver or in, in Canada 
versus um, certain other countries is that there's always going to be this disconnect and that people will pay a lot for access to what is a very privileged situation yeah. in, in Canada. And that's the reality of what the recruiters are selling overseas. And, and I'm just wondering if there's any way to... I mean, I've always I've, I've struggled with this for a long time in terms of how you would actually get around that, other than you know, some type some type of attempt at global greater equality on a global scale, which you know is unlikely to happen anytime soon. But you know, it's something we can some of us might aspire to, but you know, we can. Yeah, so from what we know, and we don't have enough information, I would argue, um, from what we know, it does appear that this is a step in the right direction, at least from the perspective of allowing families to come to Canada and join the caregivers to alleviate that lengthy family separation um, is a positive. Um, Occupation-specific work permits is slightly better than an employer-specific work permit, we think. Um, because it will provide a degree of, of labor market mobility, potentially. Um, although, again, um, it, it is limiting, right? Um, I just want to re- reiterate again that, you know, I, we think that any, any temporary foreign worker who comes to Canada, any worker in Canada should have the same labor market mobility as Canadians or permanent residents. Otherwise, you create like a second class category of workers, right, who are somewhat indentured um, to their employers. Um, but like I said, we don't we don't have enough information. We don't know, um, you know, whether this new program will restrict access <laughs> to, to be able to come to Canada for these workers. Um, what we would like to see is, is a program that allows um, for um, people in working in lower skilled jobs to be able to come to Canada as permanent residents on arrival um, is similar to what exists, you know, under the express entry or higher skilled um, for higher skilled workers. And so, um, so it's a step in the right direction, but I feel like we still have a long way, a long way to go in terms of creating the conditions under which all workers in Canada can meaningfully access and exercise their rights as workers. And for the caregivers who live out, where where do they typically like stay if they're immigrating to a new country making $14 an hour? Um, like from what you see, where are they staying with the people they happen to know in Canada or? Yeah, I would say often, um, we, you know, they might have other family that live here who they can live with. They might have an auntie or an uncle or a cousin or um, someone with whom they can move in with. Um, yeah, I would, I would think it, it's, it's quite rare, I think, that a caregiver would actually like rent an apartment on their own, although it's not unheard of. You'll sometimes see that like there are groups of caregivers like sharing yeah. one and two bedroom apartments together and uh, you know, turning over much of the time and then they you know, it's uh they're 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 living in very shared roommate situations. It's like dorm style. 
I guess two, uh, two questions come up for me with respect to the new code. One is like the idea is that employers are going to pay for, for an LMIA and then the employee is going to have an open work permit, which I don't think exists in any other programs. Is that like there's no other program where an employer has to, has to lay out that type of resource at the beginning? You know, there have been proposals of cost recovery where like, I can't remember if I read about it in this program or just when the issue was raised of one of the committees as to whether the next employer would have to pay the first employer for the remaining portion of the thousand dollars, say, let's ignore recruiting and legal fees, but at least the part that's fixed uh, before they can actually employ the person. I don't know if that was in this program or just another program where it was discussed as a way to try to avoid having some employers shoulder the burden only to have others freeload off of it. I don't, know if I don't know. I don't even think we know whether or not, as I said, there's going to be an LMIA. Because to get an LMIA for what is an open permit, like, I don't know. I, I don't know. I don't think we know that. And also remember, at the moment, certain employers are actually LMIA fee, application fee exempt, depending on what their household income is, too. So it will be, if their household income is below a certain amount, they don't need to pay the $1,000 when they make their LMIA application. So this type of detail, a lot of chat chatter has gone on. They've done multiple consultations, but most of them were like information receiving. They were very short. I found, I don't know if you feel the same way, Natalie, about sharing what some of these plans might have been. There was a lot of discussion, but um, uh, I feel that, you know, very little about what some of the ideas are that are being played with. Um, do you feel that way, or? Yeah, absolutely. Um, I mean, <laughs> yeah. I mean, it was a lot of when we attended the consultation in, in Vancouver. It was a lot of um, you know the participants um, you know sharing their their perspectives, their experiences, their challenges. And we haven't, you know, had an opportunity to cons- really consult on any um, potential models, right, for what this program would look like um, going forward. And so yes, we're a little concerned about what's yeah. coming down the pipe. Yeah, yeah, I would say that too. And I think that the, there was a lot, there's a large quantity of consulting and by that I mean they sat in lots of rooms with lots of caregivers and lots of stakeholders and wanted to hear lots of people explaining the issues. And I feel that what's come out is an acknowledgement, family separation is bad, um, being tied to an abusive employer is bad, uh, a bunch of other things like this. And what they've told us so far does acknowledge that they've heard those complaints but in terms of an actual concrete explanation as to how the mechanics are going to work, I feel like I know next to nothing about that. And I think that uh, we were involved at pretty much all levels of the, the consultations. So the Migrant Worker Center, I imagine, would have been pretty much involved in every level of the stakeholder consultations. And I think I was, um, for the CBA, involved in the same. Right. Um, but it was very short on content, a lot of listening, 
and then saying that, yes, we hear those concerns. So during the consultations, was it ever raised? So the spouses and children of what the government calls high-skilled workers can come to Canada. Low-skilled, they can't. Why it would only be caregivers who can bring their spouses and children and not truck drivers, burger flippers, any of the they'd be low-skilled food counter attendants. I think because of the recognition that this was going to be a temp to perm, that there was the intention that this was going to be a restoration of a hybrid model program. Unless it models an expression of interest, in which case you still have more workers coming in than we'll ultimately get. I don't think that that's the idea. Like when the, when the pathways came up for expiration, um, there was a lot of negative feedback about this. And actually, I want to go further back. Um, when the, the Foreign Domestic Movement Program, that's the predecessor to the Living Caregiver Program, when people took to the streets about that program, it was all this living caregiver, good enough to work, good enough to stay. That was the campaign back in the 80s. Like, if we're going to raise your kids, we would like to be given an opportunity to land. And I think that there was a political recognition of the fact that given the value and the long-term nature of the contribution and that you're helping create the new generation of Canadians, we believe that this is a position that, like, you deserve to become Canadian yourself. And that was a political decision made at that time that was carried through through generations of politicians. And then it kind of ended when the Conservatives said, you're saying temporary is temporary and permanent is permanent. And when that program went to sunset and everyone went crazy because they're expiring and CIC put a thing on their website saying we will no longer accept any applications as of the 29th of November 2019 and the community went kind of crazy for a minute, the minister went out on Twitter and said we will always have a place for caregivers as permanent residents. And again, it was just a tweet, but I think that this idea is... We're not going back on good enough to work, good enough to stay. We are still there politically. So I think that maybe that's the... But you think that there are going to be caps going forward? Oh, I'm sure there are going to be caps. So will that be done at the work permit stage or the permanent residence stage? I don't think they're going to be different. I think they're going to be... If you're coming in, you're coming in for good. Like, we're going to come in, we're going to do admissibility screening from the beginning. Like... I guess the express entry model, you could see them possibly doing it at the work permit stage, where people looking to hire their caregivers have to be ranked at the outset before they get. So now in all the other streams, there's no cap on the number of foreign workers who come and only those who make it through the ranking systems can apply for permanent residency. If it's good enough to work, good enough to stay with a quota, I mean, they would have to, I would think, do it at somehow at the work, like kind of with International Experience Canada. Where they would just where that is done by a lot like a lottery system, but they could just do a ranking system. I think it's going to have to be at the because I think that was the clear message they got from people to let somebody come in and then be later like, sorry, we were wrong. You actually don't have the qualifications. I think the clear message they got from the community is that's not cool, and that's why they came up with this interim pathway that was supposed to like. Hey, to all of you who we let in under that temporary stream, and then said, no, sorry. You're no longer eligible. You're not eligible for the permanent residence part. We're going to try and make it right with some of you. Not so all of you. The other thing is, how many, just to get it, how many um, living caregivers, or, or sorry, living caregivers 
are getting permanent residents under the levels right now? Like in in in, in, oh, in a year, <laughs> or are they are they separated out? Are they even separated out in the? In the it's such a nightmare to look at because they are not in the stats distinguishing the old inventory under the old program from the inventory under the new pathway. So it's impossible. I found, and I've done all sorts of privacy requests to try and tease it apart, but it's virtually impossible to understand what you're looking at in the numbers. But what I do know, and I don't know if you have better information than me, but the interim pathways, those hybrid, those ones in the middle of the two, um, they got no applications. Like the number of people that came in. And so like you can file an application and like four days later you'll get an approval because they're like, oh God, a person applied. Like, like they just want to get somebody processed. This is that 90 day. This is the one that was introduced by the conservatives that like, you know, that from 2014 to 2019, nobody was applying in those programs. Because nobody qualified? Because they would come in and they would have, you know, that period of time and then they had to go get credentials assessments and they might have thought that they had the credentials because they had a university degree in the Philippines, but it turns out that it's not equivalent to one year of Canadian post-secondary and they didn't do the language test, so they maybe not. So... They just didn't, they had a quota on that and they didn't even post where they were on the quota because they weren't even, they weren't anywhere near it. So they didn't even publish it because I think it was an embarrassing statistic for them to put on their website to see how small it was. And they said as much, they said as much on panels at conferences that don't worry about the quota. Just really don't, don't, don't think about it. You're not going to, you're not going to have a problem because of the quota. It was 2,500. Well, oh, the quota was twenty five hundred. They were like, "Don't, don't worry about it." And how many? And how many live in? How many caregivers are there in Canada on a temporary basis at any given time? Like, in at this particular time in Canada, on work permits, ballpark, how many caregivers are there? Like, are we talking thousands, tens of thousands? Again. Um it's hard to say. <laughs> um, there, we know that there's less than there used to be. Um, I actually looked at some stats um, with regards to how many caregivers received permanent residency under the new pathways in the first three years, and it was only 555 uh, each year compared to over 5,000 um, in the 10-year period prior to that. So it just... Do you think that's the education assessment or the language? I think it's... Partly that, I think it's also the fact that a lot of the initial work permit applications were getting refused at visa offices, which meant that fewer caregivers um, were even coming into the country. And people just weren't challenging those refusals because, like, you're in, you know, the Philippines and you get a refusal saying that you're at overstay risk, even though you meet all the requirements for the eventual permanent residence stream. You've got your credentials assessment. You've got your language test. Are you going to hire a lawyer in Canada to do a judicial review of that refusal? Like, it's a lot of money. And, uh, you know, even if you win on one basis, it's going to go back. Like, are they not able to come up with reasonable grounds to say you might be an overstay if you've never left your country of citizenship? You don't own land. You don't have you know, uh, a, a really strong career job in your country. Uh, yeah. 
So the other thing I noticed we're coming up to an hour is one of the complaints you also hear about the program is it just allows government to avoid introducing affordable daycare. So do you notice lower, or from what you know, lower rates of usage in, say, Quebec as compared to BC in terms of caregiver uh, applications and number of caregivers? It's a good question. I think I think there's a lot of issues in Quebec <laughs> um, that the caregiver advocates have been raising there. Um, I'm not completely up to speed on what the particulars of those are, but well, my understanding my understanding is that they cannot apply under under the interim pathways or even under the 2014 program. Oh, so yeah, <laughs> yeah. So you can like in those in that permanent residence program 2014 to 2019, you can't apply for permanent residence unless you can convince immigration that you intend to settle outside of Quebec. So less people use it where there's a province that has daycare, but that's just because there really isn't a program there. I guess my other so the sense that I get is that the bulk of the caregivers are coming from a limited number of countries. Is that an accurate perception? And if so, is there a reason why? Like, what, what is it about the program that, or about, like, what's your sense of, of what the profiles of people who are coming in? And if, uh, like, for example, in Vancouver, it seems the Philippines seems to be a particular um, source of caregivers, uh, but or is that a, an accurate perception? And if so, why do you think that is? Yeah, I think it is an accurate perception. I think um, the stats are somewhere around eighty-five percent of caregivers who come to Canada are from the Philippines. Um, we do see caregivers from other countries, but uh, the vast majority of, of people that come to our office are from the Philippines. Um, and I think the reasons for that are complex. Um, <laughs> I mean, I think one of the reasons is that the country, the Philippines, has a labor market, labor export policy where um, I think it's over 6,000 people leave the Philippines every day to look for work. Um, and so Canada is an attractive um, choice for, for some people uh, from the Philippines because of the potential for becoming a permanent resident. Many many people from the Philippines also go to Hong Kong, Singapore, Taiwan, um, Gulf states um, to do caregiving work as well. Um, but those who, who choose to come to Canada choose to come here um, because they there, you know, that there is that option to become a permanent resident. But, no, but I mean, from a, I'm just trying to understand why, like, in China or in India, you would have significant pools of people who would want to come and work in Canada and get permanent residence. So the attractiveness of coming to Canada would, uh, I'm just trying to understand why, just from a population perspective, you, you have much bigger pools in uh, in some other countries, but they're they, like eighty five percent is even higher than I would have thought. I'm just wondering: is there is there something about the program itself, or is it something about the requirements or the or the desires of the employers, or what? Like, what is why why the Philippines? Like, I'm just. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I mean, I think it could have to do with the educational requirements, even under the Living Caregiver Program. Um, 
caregivers had to demonstrate that they had the equivalency of Canadian high school, which for someone from the Philippines means that you have some post-secondary education completed in the Philippines. So we see a lot of um, you know people with bachelor degrees um, who are like nurses, teachers in the Philippines coming to Canada to do this work. Um, the you know the the labor market there is uh, or the workforce I should say is is a fairly highly educated workforce in the Philippines. A lot of people um, pursue post-secondary education. Many of them learn English from a young age. And so I think all of these things might factor into that as well. Yeah. I was just going to add, I mean, you, you talked about the foreign export policy, but I think uh, to understand how that actually works as a dynamic in the Philippines, like the... You know, the government actually, like, even here in Vancouver, you'll hear, um, you know, people from the embassy going and talking about, you know, how the remittances from Canada to the Philippines helps to support the, the economy. And I think that there is a very, um, there's a very strong, um, a strong, almost lobby for people to go abroad from the Philippines, um, and because um, because there's so much um, infrastructure around training for caregivers in the Philippines, and that sort of um, to some degree because of partnerships between the government and. They have a very structured system for credentialing people in different occupations, and they've resourced training for caregivers over a prolonged period of time so that the number of organizations that are there to qualify people, to give accreditation for people who have done training as caregivers, they have a whole thing where you have to get certified to come to Canada, even though that's no longer a Canadian requirement. It's part of their whole exit procedure and everything like that. So I think that it's very, very well structured there. Um, And there's also a huge number of recruiters that are actively flogging going abroad to seek work as as a caregiver. So even somebody who's like qualified as a nurse, you'll find that like on, on buses, on the radio, on television, they're like advertising this. No, 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 you don't want to go as a nurse. I mean, you could go and work as a nurse or you could come to Canada and work as a caregiver. Like there's a whole (laughs) culture. It's really interesting and it's very difficult to disassemble even when there are now other alternatives that might be even more viable and have a much much more immediate uptake in terms of when they would have the ability to actually settle in a more independent kind of a way. And then the final one, and you're right, this is a very complex one in terms of the like the employer-driven component to it. Um, if you're talking about that thing about an employer who's looking for a certain demographic of an employee, um, and this is where like you don't want to sort of um, make stereotypical comments, but um, unfortunately, sometimes you will have employers, I'll see them in my office at times, saying, no, I do want a Filipino caregiver. I want somebody who's not going to talk back to me. I want somebody who's going to take instruction. Um, And so um, part of what, to some employers, the appeal is, is this service-oriented culture, you know, and that is something that in school, in um, you know, in the, the household, 
this notion of um, trying to be very accommodating and to be really mindful of the needs of their elders and superiors and that sort of thing. Um, employers, some employers tend to really like that service-oriented culture, let's just say, in the caregiver community. So it, it comes from all sorts of different um, yeah, motivators. So is there anything else that we've anything else we've missed? I mean, obviously, lots of things we've missed. We're clearly going to have to have, oddly enough, uh, the the November date is after the election. Is that uh, right, yeah. is that coincidental or is that uh, no? <laughs> see two people shaking their heads. Uh, well, we don't know what Maxim Bernier will do when he's prime minister after November. <laughs> Great. I'm gonna, I'm gonna. I'm just gonna leave that. Yeah. Uh, well, thank you very much, Natalie. Thank you. It's thank you. Been very educational. Hey, it's Danny Pellegrino from Everything Iconic. Ready to upgrade your style game without blowing your budget? Check out Quince. They've got all the good stuff, shirts and polos, activewear and fine leather goods, all at 50 to 80% less than other high-end brands. And the best part? They're all about safe, ethical and responsible manufacturing. Get that luxury vibe without the luxury price tag. Hit up quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. That's quince.com slash upgrade. If you thought the only way to get a more defined jawline with natural-looking results was through surgery, think again. Juvederm Volux XC is a non-surgical injectable gel filler that improves moderate to severe loss of jawline definition and can help you achieve natural-looking results with little downtime. Even better, this improved definition lasts up to one year with optimal treatment. No maintenance required. Improve jawline definition for a smooth, sculpted look with Juvederm Volux XC. For important safety information and to find a licensed specialist, visit Juvederm.com. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M.com. Not for people with severe allergic reactions, allergies to lidocaine, or the proteins used in Juvederm. Common side effects include injection site redness, swelling, pain, tenderness, firmness, lumps, bumps, bruising, discoloration, or itching. There's a risk of unintentional injection into a blood vessel, which can cause vision abnormalities, blindness, stroke, temporary scabs, or scarring. Talk to a licensed specialist to find out if it's right for you.